Now I'll introduce today's guest. The United States and Canada have grown up together. Our shared history, ancestry, geography have forged a bond that is the envy of much of the world. And one of our guests today has called, has been called the closest relationship between the two sovereign nations in history. I don't think it's an exaggeration to say that the friendship, mutual respect, and common values of our two countries share have been responsible for much of the quality of life in both our nations and, uh, and how we enjoy them. Our peaceful coexistence along this 9,000 kilometer border, that's about 5,500 miles in the US, um, our common waterways, natural resources, shared environments, and ecosystems, and the fact that we are each other's single largest trading partner makes it patently obvious that we need each other and have everything to gain by protecting our good relationship and ensuring that it continues. I think President Obama would agree with me. When he took office in 2009, his very first trip was to Ottawa. And shortly afterwards, he appointed one of the most trusted friends and supporters to be his representative here. Like President Obama, David Jacobson is from Chicago, a city not far from the Canadian border and a neighbor, really on the Great Lakes waterway. That proximity, along with his experience in commercial law and his interests in city, technology, and innovation of all kinds, has no doubt contributed to a special understanding of the issues that define our two countries, especially our economic independence. Ambassador Jacobson has never hesitated to say that he wanted to come to Canada. In fact, shortly after his arrival in Ottawa last fall, he did something that very few Canadians would even attempt. He went on an eight-week tour of the country that took him to all 10 provinces, meeting all the premiers and even attending the Grey Cup. Today, he joins us to discuss another journey, one along the path of economic recovery that our two countries must travel together. Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome David Jacobson, the United, United States Ambassador to Canada. Thanks, John. I appreciate those kind words. I will tell you, the Grey Cup was a very special moment for someone from Chicago because I have seen Chicago teams lose in every way that I thought was possible. But those of you who remember how that game ended, will uh, it, was, it, it made me feel right at home. Um, I really do want to thank, uh, thank you for uh, inviting me here today, and I really, uh, it's, it's good to see so many of my friends here in the room, um, and I very much appreciate the fact that you have scheduled this as a lunch rather than a dinner. Um, I uh, am planning on keeping my evening free tonight because, uh, as you heard, I am from Chicago. Uh, <laughs> And, and as you know, my Blackhawks are playing tonight. They're ahead three to two in the Stanley Cup final. Uh, I know that people from Toronto lament the fact that you haven't won a Stanley Cup since 1967. That is like yesterday to those of us from Chicago. Uh, um, and uh, I, I wanna put this in a little bit of perspective for you. The last time that the Blackhawks won the Stanley Cup my boss, the President of the United States, was not yet born. It was going to be four months until he was born. The players didn't wear helmets. The goalies didn't wear masks. I think the puck was still made out of wood. Um, but I, I am quite confident that uh, before I come back to Toronto again, we are going to change all that, uh, and you guys are going to hold the record for the, the longest period without a cup. Um, I would like to talk to you a little bit today 
about the state of the American economy and where I think it's going. And the reason I do that is, is I believe that that is a topic of enormous significance to the Canadian people, um, and particularly here in Toronto. Uh, given the extraordinary interrelationship and integration of our two economies. Um, as a hero of mine, John Kennedy, once said in a speech to your parliament, he said that it's geography that made us neighbors, it's history that made us friends, but it's economics that have made us partners. And I want to begin by inviting you back uh, a little ways. Um, the President of the United States has just been sworn in. Unemployment is extraordinarily high. The national debt is rising fast. It's rising too fast. Families are struggling to keep their homes. And the president stands before the Congress, and he tells the American people that the economy is in the worst mess that it's been in since the Depression. He says that swift action is absolutely required. He calls it a potential economic calamity. And then the speech ends, and you turn the channel on the TV, and you watch another program, let's say uh, Little House on the Prairie or, or maybe Barney Miller. And the reason for that is that the president who gave that speech wasn't Barack Obama, it was Ronald Reagan, and it was in 1981. And, and I raise this because most often when we think that we're living in extraordinary economic times, unprecedented economic times, that history taps us on the shoulder and reminds us that there really is a precedent uh, for what we're going through. And, and my goal is not to try to downplay the current economic challenges because they are legion. But what I want to do is I want to emphasize the long history that we have of resilience even under trying circumstances. It has been bad before, but even when it's been bad, uh, over the last couple of hundred years, people have not done real well by betting against the United States of America. And in the years and in the decades that followed President Reagan's speech in 1981, uh, America did recover, and then some. Uh, we've had very strong growth. We had low unemployment. In the 1990s, we had the longest interrupted economic expansion in our history. Now, as was true for President Reagan, uh, in Barack Obama's first year in office, the most pressing issue that he had to face was how he was going to confront the economic crisis. Uh, when he came into office, the story was, was clearly being told in macroeconomic numbers, uh, employment data, foreclosure tallies, GDP declines. But I think more importantly to him and, and certainly to me, it was being felt in a very personal way uh, in individual households and in businesses and among entrepreneurs and workers and among mothers and fathers. And it was quite obvious that a, a, a um, recession closes doors and it narrows options and it limits opportunities for so, so many people. And the United States economy, when the President, President Obama came into office, uh, it was declining hard and it was declining fast. Uh, it was declining to levels that haven't been seen in decades. In 2008 alone, the net worth of U.S. households fell by 18 percent. 
That is $11 trillion. It fell by $11 trillion. That is the GDP approximately of the United States for an entire year. Now, this wasn't your grandfather's depression, not by a long shot, but it also wasn't exactly your father's recession. And it required that the President and the Congress pursue measures to rescue financial institutions and to invest almost a trillion dollars in a stimulus package. These measures were opposed and opposed strongly by some, but make no mistake about it, first they arrested and now ultimately have started to reverse the decline that we felt a year or so ago. There's an American author, uh, Robert Penn Warren, and he wrote a book called All the King's Men. And in it he said that the world is like an enormous spider web. And if you touch it, however lightly at any point, the vibrations ripple to the remotest perimeter. And I think that that is a very useful analogy uh, to think of in terms of how the modern economy works. And it helps to explain how decisions that are made in one or two sectors in one country can reverberate across the whole economy in, th in that country and then the whole country and ultimately the whole world. But I think that it also serves to illustrate the recovery and how that one's going to work. Um, that it begins small on streets and on farms and spreads to offices and factories and ripples onward and upward. And because American leaders made difficult choices about a year ago, our economy that was shrinking before is now expanding. Uh, our economy grew at an annualized rate of 3.2% in the first quarter of this year. That is three straight quarters of growth. Consumer spending rose by 3.6%, which is very important in my country because about 70% of our economy is based on consumer spending. Uh, business inventories rose. Uh, probably a lot of people in this room understand that that is a very strong sign that businesses believe that recovery is going to last out into the future. Uh, and the President has described a lot of these economic numbers as important milestones in the recovery. But he realizes, and I think we all realize, that there is a long road that's going to stretch out before us. Uh, we've got a long ways to go. And uh, we've still got a number of obstacles to overcome before we rectify this situation. And I want to touch on at least three of them here today. First of all, I think that, and, and I think this has particular, particular application here in Toronto, which is such a financial center, um, that most Americans, and probably most Canadians would agree, that we need to take steps to ensure that the kind of crisis that happened a year or so ago doesn't happen again. Recessions are always going to be part of the economic cycle. That's inevitable. But the financial crisis <clears throat> that gripped Wall Street was anything but typical. And in fact, uh, we now find ourselves in the United States uh, with Americans trying to uh, get our way, work our way out of the economic crisis that we're in by buying some of the 5,000 books that have been written about what happened in the economic crisis. Um, the crisis on Wall Street has prompted the President to move forward with a package of reforms and regulation to help govern how big banks and other financial institutions operate and to protect Americans from another failure of responsibility. As he said, 
A free market was never meant to be a free license to take whatever you can get and however you can get it. Second thing I want to talk about is that the President has made it clear about the need to reduce the deficit over the long term. Short-term stimulus was required in the United States just as it was required in Canada and many other places around the world. But if we want to continue to compete in the 21st century, we can't borrow too much, we can't put off tough decisions, and then expect to succeed. Now, we can argue about exactly how much stimulus is good and exactly how much deficit is tolerable. But I think we all have to understand that there's a balance that needs to be struck there. And I can assure you that the President understands that there is a balance and there's a balance that needs to be struck. Third and finally is the issue of unacceptably high unemployment. An economy that was losing jobs a year ago has indeed begun to replace those jobs today, but we have a very long way to go in that regard. It's great when you can read good numbers in an economic report, but if you don't have a job, those numbers aren't going to do much to feed your family. And we need to take action to help bolster our economy, to keep America strong, and to create good new American jobs. Now, you can see a long-term strategy, a long-term strategy, in a number of things that the President has done, particularly in areas of energy and in healthcare and in education. Uh, we have made, in the last year, enormous investments in clean energy in my country. Uh, and we've done that not just to reduce our reliance on foreign oil, but also so that we can become a leader in energy solutions and be able to create some of those green jobs that are going to drive the economy in the future. We've invested in health care in order to put a rein on soaring costs that became a threat to our economy and to productivity. Um, and in the stimulus bill, there was an enormous amount of money that was dedicated to education in order to give Americans, young and old, the skills and the knowledge that they require to compete in, in a very competitive world. And these initiatives were critical, but the fact is that their true impact is not today, it's some ways off. And so what we have to do is we have to take steps to take action now. And one important example of that uh, is the President's effort to stimulate our economy through exports. Uh, and by encouraging Americans to create and to produce goods and services that other nations want to buy, um, we're going to create jobs in the United States. The President calls it his National Export Initiative, and I want to discuss it for a minute in detail uh, because I think it is such an important part of the President's plan and because I think it has such important implication in Canada. President Eisenhower once said that trade barriers, though intended to protect a country's economy, often shackle its prosperity. So it's important, very important, that the United States keeps its markets open to the rest of the world. And it's very important that we resist any effort to try to close those markets. If we close our doors to the world, the world is going to close their doors to us. We understand that. Um, and that would be a terrible problem because, and a lot of people oftentimes lose sight of this, the United States is the world's number one exporter. We also happen to be, by quite a bit more, the world's number one importer. Um, 
But we exported more than a trillion dollars worth of goods in 2008, which, rec which, which computes to more than six million jobs. Now, the math here is pretty simple. If we increase our exports, we increase the number of jobs we've got. And by extension, we increase the overall economy. And the National Export Initiative has the goal of doubling U.S. exports over the, ne the next five years. Uh, and unfortunately, I don't think we're going to be able to rely on iPads for all of that. Um, but um, our big companies in the United States, they're pretty good at exporting. They know how to do it. They have people who've done it, and, and they really have gotten very good at it. Um, but the f and therefore, the focus of the president's initiative is on smaller and mid-sized companies and helping them to provide access and a toolkit of services, uh, including financing and counseling, so that they can get into the export market. And although I'm not an entrepreneur, uh, I do believe that Canada is the cornerstone of that effort. It is, as you all know, already our largest export market. Access is already established through NAFTA. There's a familiar business and consumer culture. And there is a real history of commerce between our two countries that probably everybody in this room understands. Not just in almost the $2 billion a day in goods that cross our border, but in, in even more entrenched and more visible ways. Our corporations are here in your downtown. Uh, our retail giants are in your malls. Your banks are on the streets of many of our cities. Uh, your Tim Horton franchises have introduced us to the strange wonders of the duchy. Uh, it's good stuff. Uh, and Timbits. Uh, the, the National Export Initiative comes down to, to this. Doubling our exports over the next five years are going to support millions of good new American jobs. Now, we need to be frank about something. There are challenges in convincing some Americans of the wisdom of open trade. But those are challenges that, quite frankly, we all face. Uh, there are those in my country <clears throat> excuse me, who support Buy American efforts, just as those are, there are those in your country that resist lowering trade barriers, for example, between your own provinces. The president is working and working hard to ensure that the benefits of trade relationships are well known and he's helping workers to adapt to the changing world that those trading relationships have brought about. But whether you are the President of the United States or the Prime Minister of Canada or any other world leader, the best way to look out for your own workers is a global economy and to make sure that your workers have got the tools to, to succeed in that global marketplace. The nature of the crisis and the form of the response were somewhat different in 2010 than they were when President Reagan was the, was the leader in uh, 1981. But it, what is consistent between those two alternatives is the confidence that a new normal is eventually going to be found. In the spring <clears throat> of 1981, President Reagan traveled to Ottawa. He spoke to a joint session of your parliament. Uh, and he declared that Americans are uniting now as they always have in times of adversity. Our growth will help fuel the steady prosperity of our friends. He was right. Americans did unite. We overcame the 1981 recession. Growth returned. 
and the American economic partnership with Canada would ultimately become deeper and stronger and more beneficial to both of our countries. Now, before I conclude today, I am going to do something that not very many American government officials have ever done. A lot of American government officials quote presidents like Lincoln and Roosevelt and Reagan and Kennedy. I'm going to quote Warren Harding. Uh, this may be the first time ever, so pay attention. You, you may be witnessing history. But in the summer of 1923, President Harding was on his way home from visiting what, what he referred to as the pioneer Americans in Alaska. And he stopped off in Vancouver and he gave a speech in Stanley Park. It was almost 90 years ago, but his words about the relationship between the United States and Canada ring true to this day. He said, so long as each country maintains its independence and each country recognizes its interdependence, those paths cannot fail to be highways to progress and to prosperity. And in the years that followed Harding's words, events proved him right. Our independence has been maintained and our interdependence has grown. And prosperity was the reward for both of us. All the numbers about how much we trade with one another and how closely our economies are linked are just a way of statistically stating what every one of us understands instinctively. We have a real stake in each other's success. For more than 100 years, our two nations have worked in partnership to create a close and a mutually prosperous economic relationship. We trade with each other. We build things together. We invest in one another. We have disputes and we resolve them. We overcome challenges and we emerge stronger. And we have come to <clears throat> understand one prevailing truth about the relationship we share. And that is that we each do well when we both do well. And I hope that we long continue to do well together. Thank you very much. Go Blackhawks. And I'm looking forward to your questions. Thank you. I haven't scared everybody away here. <clears throat> uh, welcome, Ambassador, and thank you. Thank, thank you. you for your speech. I represent. Sorry, could you? Yeah, could you all identify yourselves oh, as okay. you ask? Uh, Marie Buntriani, President of the Rom Governors Royal Ontario Museum, uh, but former Minister of Intergovernmental Affairs and Paul Genet's uh, uh, stomping grounds. Um, as, as representing today one of the uh, fine cultural institutions in Toronto. And a favorite uh, of ours. Yes. Uh, um, anyone else in the room that heard that? Um, <laughs> a big favorite. Here it for the round. Our admissions are up, our revenues are up, but what is down is visits from American tourists, for obvious reasons, the economy being the most. But another one, harking back to my political days and intergovernmental, is the passport issue. We fully respect and understand the security issues. But what is being done, actually on both sides of the border, but particularly from your point of view, to uh, facilitate uh, transportation back and forth, visitation back and forth? Are, are we ever going to go back to the days where someone from Buffalo can spend a day at the ROM without a passport, without a visa, without a Nexus card? 
Yesterday, <clears throat> I gave a speech in uh, Windsor, and I told a story which I am not going to tell again because my wife doesn't allow me to tell it because I think everyone in Canada has heard it, but the gist of it is that the first time I ever left the United States, I came across the Ambassador Bridge, and who'd have thought? But, um, but the point of the story is that I wish, believe me, no one wishes more than I, that we could go back to a world that was like it was when I was seven years old and drove in my parents' Buick across the Ambassador Bridge. Um, to be honest, I don't think that's likely to happen anytime soon. I'll never say never, but it's not likely to happen anytime soon. Um, and what we have to do is we have to adjust to the world that we're living in. Now, I think we have made enormous adjustments on both sides of the border. We had infrastructure and we had technology that much of which predated the Second World War. Uh, it is just woefully inadequate for both our physical needs now and our mutual security needs. Uh, and so a piece of what's been done over the last several years is to invest in infrastructure, to invest in technology, to invest in people so that the movement back and forth across the border goes more smoothly. Um, I also think, and, and uh, I, I won't belabor the detail here, but I think that, one, that, that there is a false choice between efficiency on the one hand and security on the other hand. That if we're smart, we probably can both increase our security in both of our countries and we can increase our efficiency. Um, and one of the things that I think we need to do is we need to look at the border not as our first line of defense, and this is true in either direction, but rather as our last line of defense. And I think that one of the ways that we do that is we take pressure off the border by moving it away from the border. Uh, and there are a variety of ways that you can do this. There's information sharing, there is intelligence sharing, there, is, there are things you can do outside of North America. Um, there, the less you have to do at the border, the easier it is going to be for people who do not wish either of us harm and for safe goods to move back and forth across the border. So I think there are a variety of things you can do. To go back to your, your fundamental premise, I do believe that the biggest reason for this is not passports, it's the economy. Uh, I, I don't doubt that there are, no doubt, you know, there are people who say, ah, it's too much trouble. Uh, but I don't think that's the big reason for the diminution in people traveling in both directions. I think if you look at the statistics of people going from Minnesota to Chicago, you'll see that's down too. Uh, and, and so I do think that it's mostly an economic thing. But the point you raise and the fundamental point is a fair one, and we got a ways to go. Thank you, Ambassador, uh, for your insightful speech. My name is Margaret Kim, and I'm a student at the University of Toronto. Um, I just had a question uh, regarding um, what your opinion is on um, the expanded role from G8 to G20. As you know, um, Canada will be hosting um, the G20 summit here in Toronto at the end of the month. I'm looking forward to seeing that lake. <laughs> Me as well. <laughs> well, I was wondering if you could identify some of just the... Just kidding, guys. <laughs> just kidding. For the record. <laughs> I was wondering if you could identify some of the uh, important um, agenda items that you think the G20 leaders should definitely address um, in this coming summit. Okay. Thank you. 
Um, sort of two questions there. In terms of the transfer from the G8 to the G20, um, I think that that is probably inevitable. Uh, the G8 was basically started after the Second World War, um, and the world has changed. Uh, one of the things I alluded to in my speech, the fact that we have a global, very competitive economy. There are countries, India, China, Brazil, uh, Mexico, others, uh, that are critical to the world economy and are part of the world economy. Uh, and it is hard to make particularly economic decisions uh, without those people being at the table. So I think at least when you're talking about economic matters that the movement from the G8 to the G20 is inevitable, it, it, it has taken place and it will continue to take place. Uh, the G8, at least now, still has a role, particularly with respect to security questions. Uh, these are um, the countries that, that are, are historically more involved in those kinds of decisions. Um, and, uh, but, but I do think you're, you're seeing a movement away from the smaller group and toward the larger group, uh, and uh, I'm not sure that that's a bad thing. In terms of the priorities at the G20, um, you and at the G8, you, you've, you know, you've all read about them. Uh, the Prime Minister has made his signature issue maternal health. Uh, there have been some flaps about exactly what maternal health includes uh, in your country and mine and in several others. Um, but pretty clearly the notion of uh, family planning uh, is a piece of that. The United States is the world's largest supporter of family planning around the world. Uh, and, and we believe that, the and I think the Canadians agree, uh, that that is a, a critical component. Um, there has been much discussion about coordinating our response to the banking and financial crisis, a uh, good bit of discussion about a tax uh, on banks, the, it's been called a lot of things, but the Robin Hood tax, a tax on financial institutions so that if there were a problem, uh, there would be money there and, and it wouldn't come out of the taxpayers' pockets. Uh, you all can read as well as I can exactly where that stands and when there's a communique, we'll comment on that. Uh, I think that another issue which will be important is inevitable these days when people from the larger, more industrialized countries and, and developing, major developing countries uh, get together is the environment and climate change. Uh, I think one of the things that we all saw in Copenhagen, uh, I guess it was last January, uh, is that having, I don't know, 180, 190 countries there is not the optimal situation for resolving much of anything. It's just chaotic, uh, and that the vast bulk of the uh, uh, contribution toward climate change comes from a much smaller group of countries, most of whom are going to be present at the G20. So I think you're going to see a lot of that, and there'll probably be other things. And, and uh, I, I'm also confident that it will not be nearly as disruptive here as uh, all of you fear. I was in Washington uh, uh, for the G20 that was there not too long ago. Uh, and uh, it was actually about two blocks from 
this was during the transition, from the transition office where I was at, and uh, honestly, we didn't know what was going on. So I, I think that uh, hopefully it, it will not be uh, anything like people are fearing. Uh, my name is Rima Slavikas. I'm a former president of Watton Hydro, but now I'm a director of energy planning in the uh, U.S. at the University of South Florida. So I have a uh, foot in both uh, countries. Uh, your, your speech was very warm and friendly, and you can see that you are among friends, and of course we have a friend in the U.S. It's very gratifying. On that note, I can see our, our common problems, our common problems. In other words, in this challenging world, with population growth in other countries, India, China, etc. What do you see uh, our direction where, realistically, we're a minority in terms of globally? I mean, six and a half billion people, collectively between the US and Canada, we're about 300 million uh, plus 350 million or so, with an aging population. The world has been fortunate with American leadership, but. I don't think that can be sustained in view that we're educating people from other countries. The internet provides information to everybody. What do you see the relationship, the future relationship, in order to maintain a standard of living between Canada and the US? How can we improve? How can we maybe closer cooperate, not become the same, a little different, but still recognizing, as you pointed out, we have common economic problems? Well, that's an easy one. Uh <laughs> You, know, you, you point out the, you, and you address the, the really one of the very fundamental issues that we face. The, uh, you know, Tom Friedman told us, and every one of us recognizes every day, that the world is changing. Uh, but I go back to something that I said in my speech, um, and that is that people have not done very well over a very long period of time in betting against the American people. And I would say the same thing about the Canadian people. Uh, I, I am, I guess, by nature an optimist, but I think in this instance um, we have a lot of reasons to be optimistic. We are, have reason to be optimistic because of natural resources. We have reason to be optimistic uh, because of the abilities of our workers and, uh, and our institutions of higher learning. Uh, we have reason to be optimistic because of the transparency of our economies. Uh, which is an, and the adaptability of our economies, which are enormous advantages, but we also face challenges. Um, and uh, I, I do think, apropos of, of what you've said, that one of the things that we can do, uh, and this benefits both countries, is not merely to have more open trade, which is important. I mean, it really is important. It really does make a difference. I mean, our trade between the United States and Canada has tripled since NAFTA. Uh, and every time that we lower trade barriers, it helps both of us. So that's one thing. Um, but uh, I, I also think that cooperation in other areas, cooperation in research, uh, there are a variety of cross-border and energy initiatives uh, that are already ongoing and can be expanded. Uh, I, I think that, and, and I talk about this all the time in my own personal experience, I was talking about this today at lunch, um, as being the United States Ambassador to Canada, it is an unbelievably rich thing for my wife and I to be here because we do share so much. And it's so easy for me to come to an event like this and talk to you and, you know, I kind of, as I always say, I get your jokes. 
hopefully you get mine. But, but, um, but that we, we can relate to one another in a way that is very, very hard for an awful lot of people around the world. Um, and I think that is an enormous advantage that we have. And the more that we can take advantage of that opportunity, you know, in my country, we do not have a monopoly on wisdom. Uh, you know, I see some people and friends in this room who've done some extraordinary things. Um, and we can, ben and, and many people in my country do benefit from them uh, every day and, and vice versa. So I think that working together with our friends, uh, realizing, as I say, that we are in this together, that when we, both, when we each do well, we both do well, uh, I think is very important. Hi, Ambassador. Uh, Surab Popat with uh, Baxter Corporation, and as a, a global neighbor of mine, right, right here from a, Deerfield. I'm from Glencoe. Well, there you go. As a, as a global corporation based in Chicago, we too are rooting for the Blackhawks. But the uh, well, question is, um, you know, one of the ways to to bring countries even closer together, as you know, is uh, uh, is uh, you know enabling policy and legislation that reflect uh, mutual values and principles. And I'm just wondering if you could uh, perhaps comment on the uh, recently introduced uh, copyright legislation in Canada and how we can further improve uh, the, uh, you know, the mutual interest in uh, intellectual property protection. Thanks. Um, I don't think it's any secret that Canada um, is on something called the Section 301, I believe it's Special Watch List is the name. Um, that is uh, something from the United States Trade Representative's Office that lists the largest offending, the worst offending countries in the world with respect to protection of intellectual property rights. Though I do think it does surprise a lot of Canadians to be lumped in, and it's not merely the United States that believes this, but the European Union and others. Um, that it is a surprise to a number of Canadians that uh, they are lumped in with countries like China and North Korea and Dubai and some other places that are notorious for some of this stuff. Uh, of the ten largest uh, sites for um, pirated software and music and, and video, uh, five of them are located in Canada. So there's a problem here. Um, and uh, we've made our views clear on that. Um, there was a piece of legislation that was introduced last week, uh, uh, I think it was last Thursday night or Friday, uh, that has a number of very important reforms in it. Um, it is very complicated, uh, and it's something that we're studying, uh, and uh, I, I'm really not in a position right now to comment on the legislation except to say uh, that the United States and the European Union and others believe that having legislation, state-of-the-art copyright legislation, that takes into account the changes in technology, uh, which at the moment I don't think Canada has, uh, is something that's important not just for Canada and, but, and not just for the United States, but for Canadians uh, and for people around the world. Nicola Swan, uh, Standard & Poor's. Thank you, Ambassador, for your speech. Um, specifically on trade policy, I just wanted to ask, um, you spoke very positively about free trade. Uh, we know that during the election campaign two years ago, um, speeches were made both by uh, the now Secretary of State and the President that seemed very much the other way. Can you, um, 
and in specifically, um, Secretary of State Clinton mentioned that there might be a need to re-examine NAFTA. Can you tell us um, today, is there any wish within the State Department to re-examine NAFTA? And can you give us some idea of how stable we should expect U.S. trade policy to be in the event that the recovery falters? Well, first of all, the reco recovery is not going to falter, so I don't have to answer that part. Um, the, the, the answer is, the simple answer is, I am unaware of any effort uh, in the United States government, in the White House, in the State Department, or anywhere else to try to renegotiate NAFTA. It's just not something, you know, I, I worry about a lot of things. Uh, trust me, I worry about a lot of things every day, uh, but that's not one of them. Uh, so I don't see that on the horizon. As I said earlier, uh, NAFTA, the trade has tripled with Canada. It's also tripled with Mexico. Uh, and uh, I have said repeatedly that NAFTA has been of benefit to Canada, it has been of benefit to Mexico, and it has been of benefit to the United States. We do not enter into free trade agreements and we do not lower tariff barriers because we're nice guys. We lower these tariff barriers and we enter into these agreements because they're good for us. They also happen to be good for you. Uh, when we had the Buy America flap, and, and every time you have a difficult economy, in every place in the world, from time immemorial since there's been international trade, um, there are desires by some people and populist sentiments to restrict that free trade. Uh, I, I think they, virtually, to my knowledge, they always fail. Uh, they are not good ideas. This is not something that the president is in favor of. He is a very strong believer in free trade. And, and I, I just, I guess, last point, when we addressed the Buy America situation a couple of months ago, uh, I got interviewed by some reporter who asked me, so who won? And my answer was simple, and the answer was we both won. Uh, that that's the whole thing with respect to trade. Uh, that when we trade, it is better for you, it is better for us. Uh, the president understands that, I understand that, and uh, uh, hopefully that will be the policy of this administration, at least for uh, the foreseeable future. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. I'd like to call on Alfred Apps now, President of the Empire Club of Canada and co-host of today's luncheon. Alfred. Mr. Ambassador, uh, you know as well as anyone that Canadians don't simply shop and take their vacations in the United States. Many of us have lived and worked there. Uh, many of us have been educated there. Some of us, like myself, have children who carry U.S. passports, which I think only goes to prove that Canadians can easily fall in love with Americans. <laughs> but we are blessed, and we think of ourselves as blessed as Canadians, not just because we have a wide and broad land of great natural beauty and streams and lakes, fake and real, <laughs> not just because we have a diverse and resilient economy, but there are two other big reasons why we as Canadians feel we're blessed. One, we've benefited from a long line 
of truly wonderful American envoys who have been great friends, not only while in office, but following their departure from office, great friends to Canada and to the Canadian people. And we've been blessed to have a neighbor who through thick and thin has been a good neighbor. And you have epitomized that in your remarks today. We're all grateful for the warmth, the substance, and simply for your being here. Thank you very much. Thanks, Alfred, and thank you again, Ambassador, for, for coming, and, uh, and also thank you to TMX Group and Thomas for your support and, uh, and sponsorship of today's event. Thank you all for coming. This concludes our television programming broadcast on Rogers TV in the days to come. We are grateful to Rogers TV and 680 News for their continuing promotion of Canadian Club events. This meeting is now adjourned. Thank you very much, and have a good afternoon.